Get out of me and, and most people can't can tell. But one of the things I am self-conscious about is humor because, you know, my brain still sort of translates jokes as in that, like, really I can understand jokes, but when I make them, I feel like, I guess I wonder if I would be funnier in my in my native language than I am in English. And there was a woman, I, her first name is Eva, I forget her surname, she wrote this book called Lost in Translation, and, and she's Polish, and it's this journey about... Welcome to Innovation and Leadership, where I interview uncommonly high achievers like top investment fund managers, elite special operations soldiers, startup CEOs who sold their companies for billions of dollars, pro athletes, Hollywood filmmakers, really as many different kinds of experts as I can. The whole idea is to hear how they did it and then what advice they have for the rest of us that can be applied to the organizations we're trying to grow and innovate. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoyed today's show. Today on the show, we've got Anastasia Lang. Anastasia, thanks for doing this. Hey, Jess. Thanks for having me. So you've done some fun things in your career already. Let's start off with, well, let's start off with CreativeX. So as founder and CEO, I'm sure you get to talk about it a bit. What's your your quick introduction when people are trying to understand what you guys actually do? Yeah, so the the quick and simple version is CreativeX is using technology to try and mesh creative expression with data. So a lot of what we think about is how do we help make image and video content more efficient and more effective by combining something that's been uh, very subjective up until now with data and trying to make it a little bit more objective and data-driven. Like what's an example? Yeah, so an example is, you know, if you look at the world of marketing and branding, a lot of the decisions that we make about the creative content tend to be very gut-based and instinctive, right? We say we like something, we don't like something. And that used to work when we were sort of in an age of, predominantly television advertising when you produced, you know, 10 to 100 pieces of content a year. But now when most large organizations produce 100,000 pieces of content a year, relying on, on gut instinct and intuition means you can get a lot of things wrong and that can be very, very expensive. And actually the, the other sort of side of the coin is now we have all this data to actually measure what's happening in your content and how it is performing. And so what we've been able to do is try and bridge these two sort of trends together, the increase in visual communication, the increase of data, how do you fuse them together to help people de-risk and better understand the creative decisions they're making such that they can always be improving all of their creative efforts. So, you know, thinking about abilities to leverage data and, and artificial intelligence and machine learning and all these Thing, you know, sometimes things that come feel like buzzwords to other people who don't actually know how to use them, right? I'm interested in what you think of this definition. We had a guy on the show a couple of weeks ago who has a VC firm that only invests in AI companies, and he wrote a book. And he said, really, in his opinion, the best way to think about it is that AI is about predictions. Like, would your, you know, should you embrace AI? Well, is there any part of your business that needs predictions? And I know it's like a massive oversimplification, but but what does that statement make you think or how would you see it differently? I would say that that is the end goal of a lot of AI-based systems, but probably not where a lot of them are today. You know, one of our investors used to have this expression, whenever any company described what they did as machine learning, he would say there are machines and there is learning, but it's not always clear that the machines that are learning, right? And, and that's kind of how we think about the way that a lot of the AI efforts are being described is, of course, the end goal is to get to a fully automated predictive state. That's not always possible from the get-go. So can you still leverage 
automation and technology and build intelligent systems to help you get smarter about the things that they do, even if they're not fully capable of being accurately predictive. Because I mean, look, making predictions is easy. Making good predictions, as, as you probably know in your line of work, is incredibly difficult. So I think there is also a view of how much do you care about the accuracy of your, of your predictions? If you do, then I would say AI has, for, for most companies, probably has some ways to go. If it's just about making any random predictions, then sure, a lot of technology can probably do that now. Sure. So somebody like, you know, these Fortune 500 brands that hire you guys, Unilever, Heineken, Google, what what is it that you're bringing to the table that they don't have in-house? Yeah. So the first thing that we're bringing to the table is full transparency into every creative decisions that they're making, right? So you take a company like Unilever or Heineken or, or ABI or Mondelez or any of these giant brands, the amount of content they're producing has increased exponentially. We see about three to five X growth in volume of image and video production year on year. That, that's obscene. And, and these, these companies aren't starting from, you know, a thousand pieces of content, right? They're starting from a, a pretty large base. And so what's happening is you're creating all this vast amount of visual content that's being uh, made by different agencies, different teams, different markets. All of them are sort of marching to the beat of this of, of a slightly different drum. And yet all of them impact the perception of you as a brand. So the first thing that we do is we say, okay, by pulling all this content into our system and analyzing it for things like creative quality, brand consistency, et cetera, we can start to get a holistic understanding as to how good your content is, who's producing good content on your behalf and who isn't, how much of your money is being spent on, on what you define as quality content versus content that isn't, and what is the impact of those decisions on everything from sales lift to brand lift. So we're really starting to, again, take what has been this, this usage, this vast usage of content globally and try to make sense of it using a more objective framework. That's exciting. I, I want to dive into this. I kind of want to talk about a couple of things from your background first, though. Can you can you tell people a little bit about Hatch? And can you tell us about just lessons from Hatch and lessons from Google that you feel like kind of prepared you for this role? Yeah, you know, it's funny because I, I never considered myself as someone who would go and do this journey. I, I don't think I started out with aspirations of, of becoming an, an entrepreneur. And I still am very hesitant to ascribe that title to myself. I, I call myself a founder, but I feel like entrepreneur is only title that other people can give you. So, you know, at, at Google, I think I, I just focused on doing as well as possible. I wanted to get promoted. I wanted to rise to the ranks and I, I worked really hard and, and did pretty well. But then Inevitably, I felt I felt a little bit bored, and this this itch this itch hit a couple times throughout my career, but it really hit at the five year mark of being at Google, and you know I, I think I just wanted to take it out. And at the time, uh, a friend of mine wanted to start a company, which was the backbone of Hatch. Now Hatch was a customization startup. The thesis was using this concept of you know sort of everything is a remix. The thesis of the company was if we could create a marketplace where everything was customizable we could create a completely new e-commerce experience, right? The idea was what could what would happen if you could come to a site and every product you saw was just a starting point for what it could be. This idea of taking customization to the next level. And, you know, we here we made kind of the cardinal startup mistake of rather than sitting down and thinking about, hey, what are the trends in retail and how do people buy? And is customization sort of a thing people feel comfortable doing? We're like, we're so passionate about this idea. Everything should be customizable. You know, let's do this. Let's launch this thing. 
So we launched the startup, which inevitably, which at some point became called, was called Hatch. We actually wanted to call it Remix, but we couldn't afford the domain name. And <laughs> as we started kind of going deeper and deeper into it, it became very clear that this was a, a terrible idea. You know, e-commerce is hard and the the economics of e-commerce businesses are really difficult, right? You have, you tend to have pretty low margins. We were selling sort of lifestyle goods at an average of somewhere between $80 to $100. So, you know, you're working up like three to 5% cuts off these tiny, tiny kind of average size products. And so you need sort of massive scale to succeed. And so we, we found ourselves at this crossroads of, we really wanted to start this company and we wanted to have this kind of startup journey that TechCrunch always talks about, but like that reality simply wasn't manifesting itself. And what we saw was that my, my um, co-founder Time and I had very different reactions where his reaction was basically, I, I don't really want to do this anymore. I, I think I want to go and do something completely different. And my mentality for better or worse, you know, I'm a fixer, right? So I was like, I gotta, I gotta find a way to make this work. And I, I think it was this, again, bit of a kind of a reality distortion field, a bit of stubbornness. I just refused to admit to myself that it wasn't working. And this is where, you know, we basically turned over every nook and cranny to try and figure out how do we get this company to work. And what we started seeing was that imagery and video was so important to our consumers' conversion path. Basically, if we put certain images and videos in front of customers, they would click and come to our site and buy. And if we put others that looked very similar to us and, you know, very similar to the naked eye, they didn't really seem to work. And so we were like, why is that? Like, you know, why do some things work and other similar looking things don't? And at the time I was actually fundraising. And so I'm, I'm kind of a slight detour here is I'm a huge data nerd and I found the investment fundraising process extremely soul crushing and, and very demotivating. And so I was trying to figure out what was it that I was doing or what could I do better? What was it that I was doing that was, you know, leading investors to not be interested? What, what did I do that got them to lean in and lean out? And so uh, I started a spreadsheet where for every single investor I met, I basically had columns for different things that I did. Did I wear glasses? Did I wear my hair up or down? Did I wear trousers or a skirt? I mean, again, superficial things, but also things that were like more important. Who introduced me to this investor? Was it a social connection or a professional connection? And I started, again, you know, nothing statistically significant here, right? But it probably gives you a little bit of an insight as to how, how anal my brain is. And so we started like thinking about the world in this way. And so at the same time that we were fundraising, we were having this problem around growing demand for, for this e-commerce site and, and kind of growing user acquisition. I thought about what if we combine these things together, right? If I believe that the way I look and the way I prevent myself is influencing the way investors react to me, why wouldn't the same thing be true for every single visual stimuli this company that I'm trying to grow puts in front of its consumers? And so that's when, and I remember talking to, to John, who is now my co-founder and, and CTO for CreativeX, and sort of saying, hey, I've, I've made this spreadsheet that's basically taken every image we've ever used. And we, you know, we've put binary zero ones in, in, in cells to figure out if it had people or if it had different colors. And, and he was like, hey, let me automate that for you. Because your time's pretty valuable. And you maybe shouldn't be spending time marking things in a spreadsheet. So, you know, long story short, it was that insight that ultimately led us into the space of 
really demystifying understanding imagery and video. And as we as we got the data through and started analyzing imagery in a kind of a much deeper way, and we started seeing data coming back that unearthed patterns that we couldn't really understand, we started making decisions off of it and revenue started to grow. And we went to fundraise for Hatch in the summer of 2015. And essentially a very bizarre and unexpected thing happened, which we were very lucky about, which is that a number of investors who took a look into the business came back and said, well, how are you guys growing here and what are you doing? And we'd explained some of the hackiness that was going on in the background. And they said, well, we'll give you money, but only if you spend this out into a separate company. Now there's, you know, again, obviously it was not as smooth. I, I've, <laughs> I've glossed over a lot of the hard bits, which I'm happy to go into, but that was how we ended up at, at what is now CreativeX. That's exciting. You know, I have so many questions, but sometimes I feel like context is helpful. So I, I want to hear how Prada and Viacom and these places also influenced your your professional journey. But, you know, to me, it's interesting what you were tracking on the fundraising. I feel like that's, you know, there there's so many things I'm below average at, but that's something that has done very well for me is, is being able to raise money. And, you know, this idea of, of tracking your visual effect on people, you know, we hear so much as kids, like, don't judge a book by a cover, you know, don't be shallow, you should get to know someone, right? And, mm-hmm. and so I feel like, in, a, in like an attempt to be fair or to kind to be kind as society, like we're trying to teach our kids that and we're, we're trying to promote concepts like that. But I feel like it's actually really unhelpful for people selling things or people trying to influence someone else. Because the reason that people say you shouldn't judge a book by its cover is because book cover graphic designers have worked so hard for so long to be able to signal to you, if the cover looks like this, that book is for you. You know, like I can scroll through Audible in there. I'm so annoyed because, you know, I always talk about the business books on the show, but I've done probably 400 books now in the Jason Bourne genre. Okay. For fun. And I can scroll through Audible and I can tell you with a really decent margin of error. No, that book is, you know, in the mysteries and thriller section, I can tell you like, no, that one's going to be about cops or that one's going to be about such and such. Like the ones that are like, you know, former special ops guy or formal spy who's like making the world better, but, you know, going around the laws to do it or, you know, stuff like this. Right. I can tell yeah. you those. I can tell you those book covers. And they have worked hard to create a visual language that makes it easy for me to know. Do I even need to read the description? Because that cover is unlikely to be either a spy or a special ops character. Right. And that's. I'm just yeah. picky. That's what I'm when I want to when I want to power down. That's what I want to listen to, right? But yeah, as salespeople, as salespeople or or CEOs or investment bankers, when you're trying to influence someone, like it is extremely efficient. Like how we groom ourselves, how we dress ourselves, the language we use, it signals to other people what we believe about ourselves, which is a really great signal for most people of what they should believe about us. You know, not always, but how we how we show up. Like everybody knows these cliches about first impressions. And yet I consistently see people not, not dress the part and, and then are shocked when things don't go well or really disappointed. It's like, well, you, mm-hmm. you know, did you consider, yeah. did you consider all the messages you were sending? <laughs> were you on time? How were you dressed? What, you know, go ahead, go ahead. What were you going to say? Yes. But, but the, the, the tricky thing here is, 
all of these things, all of these impressions and cognitive shortcuts are usually based on pattern recognition, right? So mm -hmm. when I was doing my, my investor spreadsheet, it was, it was really to understand how do I get myself to fit more into the pattern where you think I am a founder worth backing? Because the reality of the VC world, right, is that there are significantly fewer women who get funded in this world. And, you know, it would take hours to dissect that topic alone. But suffice it to say that the pattern recognition that has been built tends to be built of, um, of you know, typically a male and, and a white male. And so what I found, and again, this is not statistically significant data, but actually, you know, when I go to investor meetings, one of the things that I found is I, I always wear glasses. I always put my hair back. I always wear trousers. Essentially, the more masculine I make myself look, the better I tend to do in these meetings. And, and perhaps it is simply, and you know, is that fair or not? That's an entirely different conversation. But part of it is, is also, you know, if, if you want to succeed, then sometimes you have to play to the pattern that gets people to, to help see you as someone who could be successful here. I feel like what you just said is such a great fundraising book subject. Like, I feel like there should be a short book on what you just said of like, regardless of how you think things should be playing the sport, the way things are is going to give you a higher, higher probability of success. Like that's the message that I felt like you're, you're giving right there. And I don't know, like, I love that. I don't feel like enough people talk about that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, my view has always been when there is a conversation around how do you get how do you get investors to fund more, more female funded, founded companies or to invest in, in founders who are from diverse backgrounds and fairly unfairly, I think the best way to do that is to build successful companies with women, you know, founders of color at the helm and show all those people who turn you down that they missed out right now. Of course, that is the long game. And it's frustrating because you're like, well, you, you know, like we should be more equitable now. And of course I believe that, but I, you know, I feel like the, the way to get there is, is prove them wrong by building the best business. And if that means I have to, you know, put my hair up and wear some trousers to some meetings, then I think relatively speaking, that is a, a, a price I am, I am willing to pay to try and get to the overall end of showing them that women can build successful, big, profitable businesses. You know, it's interesting, this, this subject, we don't have to go down this rabbit hole too far, but, but I'm interested how you feel about one of my observations. I feel like there is a, like, there are a lot of dudes who have like an unhealthy amount of ambition who like, you know, neglect their families and, and like, in in the name of success, they they live these like re, like relatively unhappy lives. Like as a as a ratio, I see more men willing to like give up friendships, give up marriages, like do all these things that are unhelpful for their long term happiness in the pursuit of money as like a massive overgeneralization. And then what's interesting about like the the like the male female biases and and these kind of things when i think about fundraising or i think about entrepreneurs i feel like in general most of the female entrepreneurs cuz so our consulting practice i have like if you take the percentage of women ceos of startups 
my, my practice is probably, I've probably got like somewhere between double to triple. Like, so say there's X percentage of women that are CEOs, the X percentage of our CEO clients are double that, right? So I've, I've advised a lot. And what I feel like is a lot of times the average female entrepreneur who should be given a fair shake doesn't get it. She has to work harder, right? But then I find like the superstar women, like they almost get this halo effect. Like for me personally, mm-hmm. I'm so interested in like the high achiever women. Well, that's why we made Lindsay Hadley a partner in our firm, right? Her, uh, I don't know if you know about Hadley Impact Consulting, but she threw a concert in Australia called End of Polio that raised, she produced it with John Legend, raised $118 million for polio from Bill Gates and the Australian government people. She produced the first years of the Global Citizen Festival in New York, raised $3 billion for charity. And the bands were like Jay-Z and Beyonce and Neil Young, whatever, right? And it's interesting how in a certain way, like she hit her head against the ceiling and people treated her poorly for a lot of her career and then she got over this certain level where where it's almost like she's got the reverse going the other direction where she gets invited to so many things like she broke this ceiling and now she has like an she has like an unfair advantage the other direction but it took her how many years of overcoming stereotypes and stuff to earn this like epic status that she has now and it's it's interesting to me anyways another one we had on the show last year stacy havener she's raised like eight billion dollars for mutual funds that led to an additional 30 billion dollars you know and it's like startup like those are the hardest mutual funds to raise money for and it's like (laughs) i love her i like i follow her around you know what i mean like i i love being mentored by her because she had to work so hard to not be discounted and like Startups is a male dominated thing. You know what's even worse? Finance, like New York, Wall Street finance, right? And not only did she nail it, she like exceeded all sorts of expectations. And now she like, she takes no prisoners. And if you look at her LinkedIn, like she has got, it's full of white men trying to get advice from her, you know? Anyways, it's in, I don't know if you see that at all or if you see it differently. No, no. I mean, I, I definitely see that. I think my what I feel when I see that is, man, is that exhausting? Because, you know, the, the women you've described, not only has it been a long journey and a painful journey, I can't even imagine all the things that they had to go through. But I think even when you get to these these positions you've described, where all of a sudden the perception has shifted and you feel like, okay, you know, you're sort of at the top. I would guess, and I don't know for sure, because I would not put myself in the category of these women, at least not yet. I would guess that there is still a little bit of an underlying fear that one wrong step and I will mm. lose very quickly this this pedestal that I've been lucky to to earn my my place on, right? You see this a little bit with I mean a lot of people have talked about this looking at the Obama presidency, right? Where you you had you had this this president with sort of very little drama, very little scandals of the kind we've seen over the last four years. And everything was sort of airtight because it had to be. And, and I just feel like, man, is that exhausting? Yeah. And, you know, and I'm sure that, especially with those two women who are close friends and mentors of mine and friends that have shared a lot with me, I'm sure they still have all sorts of biases. They continually overcome. And there's, you know, I mean? like I'm painting this picture of like life has now become easy, which it, it in no way has. Right. But yeah, I will say at least for me personally, like I am more likely to listen to what one of those two have to say 
than one of their male counterparts a lot because they have had to like they know their stuff so upside down and backwards because they've had to that I like have so much faith in them well okay sorry for the tangent but uh, I was interested in your thoughts (laughs) on it no 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 but but one one last thing I'll say on that then then we can we can move on is that you know, you, you made the, the the last point about they know their stuff inside and out, and I think it's it's because they have to, right? They, the I noticed this a little bit. A number of, of people, much more uh, brilliant than I, have have written about this, where even the way men and women pitch their companies is very different. Where men tend to be much more comfortable making kind of broad hyperbolic statements, which VCs will tend to interpret as they have a, a bigger vision, they're more ambitious in what they want to do. I think some research has shown that for women, they, because everything is tends to be grounded more in kind of data or fact, they, their propensity to talk about the world in this very measurable way makes them come off as being less ambitious, which mm. therefore interprets the ambition they actually have. And so, you know, to your point about they know everything, well, I, th- I think it's partially because of the, and, and this actually I think is true for every founder, where every founder I've spoken to, regardless of gender, race, et cetera, has a real, what's the word? like intruder dilemma, right? Fear of being found out, fear that they don't really belong. And the way you compensate for that is you're like, right, I'm going to know all the facts inside and out so that I I really feel like I I belong here. Yeah, I I will say sometimes I feel like the soundbite media does oversimplify things too. You know, they make it sound like if you're white male, life has just been handed to you, you know, where kids from underprivileged backgrounds where their dad was a criminal, their mom had substance abuse issues can have just as much of the outsider feelings and the imposter syndrome, you know, but, but sometimes in the, you know, the, the maybe far, especially far left media, that's not a story that sells. So it doesn't get, it doesn't get airtime, you know, it doesn't get acknowledged. Right. Yeah. And yeah. Or, or like, you know, I, I think of one especially is folks, English is a second language, you know, they're first generation or second generation. And, the U S or Canada or something like that. And just, you know, they can have like almost like societal imposter syndrome of, of feeling like their whole family has been judged and everyone in their community has been judged. And they, they, they walk around having had all sorts of things reinforced that everybody's looking down on you right now, you know, and they just, you know, that can just stick my, my brother-in-law's from Peru and we, I do coaching for him, helping think through entrepreneurial ideas. And he's been in Canada for years and he's, he's super intelligent at what he's good at, but you know, he could probably do some dialect coaching if he wanted to sound like, if he wanted to sound like he'd been born in Canada. Do you know what I mean? Right. Yeah, and absolutely. It's, anyways, go ahead. What were you going to say? Yeah, well, you know, something I really relate to, right? So I moved to the to the U.S. when I was about about thirteen. Speak a word of English. Yeah. So, so, so I my family was born, and and I was born in Russia in Moscow, and then I moved to Vietnam when I was seven, and then Budapest and Hungary, and then Bahrain, and and finally at the age of about twelve, thirteen, we moved to the U.S. Originally Manhattan, and then and then the glorious state of New Jersey. And I didn't speak a word of English. And not only that, but sort of I, I physically looked very different because my, my parents refused to invest in Americanized things. So I remember <laughs> they thought like jeans were a terrible thing. So for ages, you know, I mean, imagine like being in middle school and sort of wearing flowery cotton pants when all of your colleagues or all of your classmates are wearing jeans. <laughs> and then I had this, I had this giant yellow backpack. Everyone had like the Jansports. I don't know if you remember the yeah, Jansports. Yeah, I remember Jansports. 
Yeah, and and my parents were like, that is terrible for your back. I mean, that that's, we can't let our child walk around with that. So I had this this kind of hard back, giant yellow backpack with reflectors on it that my friends nicknamed the school bus. Um, <laughs> and so, you know, I am amazed that I was not bullied. I mean, it, it really is. It really is a, a miracle that I was moved. But anyway, the reason I tell the story is English is my third language. And uh, I, I joke with my friends that kind of the accent has really been bullied out of me and, and most people can't can't tell. But one of the things I am self-conscious about is humor mm. because, you know, my brain still sort of translates jokes as in that, like, really, I can understand jokes, but when I make them, I feel like, I guess I wonder if I would be funnier in my in my native language than I am in English. And there was a woman, I her first name is... Eva, I forget her surname, she wrote this book called Lost in Translation, and, and she's Polish, and it's this journey about, about being kind of an immigrant and, and being in a culture where you are learning the language as a second or third language, and how people can spot your foreignness, even after you feel like you've lost the accent, because of your inability to joke like a native. And so that always stayed with me because that's actually where I feel most insecure, and I, I wonder again if in a different world I'd be funnier. <laughs> Interesting. You know, I, I that what what you're saying makes so much sense. One other application that I think about it, which is very relevant to fundraising too, to me is industries have their own languages. You know, I when mm-hmm. I I took a break from finance and was doing management consulting, and I was like so excited they let me be in charge of their account for uh, naval special warfare for the Navy SEALs in Coronado, and I was like, man, I've been reading Jason Bourne books forever. I'm like, this is gonna be so cool, and then I like panicked. I was like, oh my gosh. It's going to take them about 0.01 seconds for everybody in the room to know they're tougher than me, right? And like, I'm supposed to be teaching a leadership class? Like, how is this going to go? And and I don't know if you've done any Department of Defense work, but they will come up with acronyms even when they don't need to. Like, it is – I mean, I've been in oil and gas. I've been in finance. I've been in a a number of different industries. And like, for me, the military has the most acronyms, okay? Well, if you don't know what the acronym means – you do not come across as an insider. You do not come across as somebody who's part of the family, yeah. right? And yeah. I'll give you my, my just to close the loop on the Navy SEAL story. I called my mentor who had been, a mentor of mine who'd been running that account before I was. And I called him up and I was like, Chris, his name's Chris Wallace. He's so great. I was like, Chris, I have an anxiety about going to California tomorrow. What do you, you know, you got any advice for me? He's like, oh yeah, we'll just do what I do. I was like, what's that? And he says, well, First thing I did is I got up on, I got up in front of them and I said, Hey, listen, guys, I just want to clear something up. I'm not here to tell you how to do your job. I don't know how to do your job. What I'm here to do is to tell you what I've been studying for the last number of years. And then it'll be your job to tell me if it applies to your job. Is that a deal? And I've used that ever since to like magic effect. So for anybody who has to like go train people they're intimidated or speak to people they're intimidated about, that was really helpful because I could feel confident about what I'd been studying and it let me off the hook from from claiming to know what they knew. So anyways, for what it's worth. Yeah, I, Google was very much, you know, it, it had its own language. And I think a lot of the value that you accrued over the years of staying there was being able to speak this acronym rich language. And one of the things that, you know, we're finding is as our company has grown, we've started, we've started attracting quite senior level people from these amazing tech companies who come in and interview. And my CTO asked them this question the other day that I thought was brilliant. He said, you know, to, to become senior at a company like Google, 
you you have to learn this institutional language and institutional way of kind of doing things and getting things done. And he said, you know, why is that valuable to us? And and I think the person was really caught off guard by that because I, the perception is, I come from a big company. You should you should feel so lucky to have me at at, at your company. And he was like, well, I don't know if the skills you have are, are actually relevant to us because they're very specific to this environment. So I think it's good to challenge sort of both ends of that. And I thought that was a, it's a great question. Yeah, it is a good point, right? Well, I feel like we need to have you back on because I've got so many questions about Creative X. There's no way we're going to cover them in 10 minutes. But let's start. So give me an example. Can we use our company's example? So let's say that at Greystoke, we start making more visual content. What's a question that people like ourselves probably aren't asking ourselves that that working with somebody like Creative X could help us realize the potential we're probably missing with our visual content? Yeah. So the first question that that the first question we try to answer is, you know, simply is your content meeting your your own internal standard of quality, right? And if so, is that standard being adhered to or not? And and who's who's the worst offender here? So really the, the basic question is, you know, when we talk about a term like creative excellence, which which in in less marketing terms is basically just making good content, you know, that's what marketers have been trying to do for, for hundreds, thousands of years. That, that is the definition in some ways, or one of the definitions certainly of marketing. But the ability to to do it again sort of in real time at scale, all of that is is much more difficult. So first question is like is trying to understand when Unilever says this is what great content means here versus when Nestle says that or Heineken, what does that actually mean? And how do we build technology that will recognize it and help you understand, are you actually creating good content or not? And then after you answer that basic question, right, which is really sort of the baseline, the foundation, we start to go much deeper into well, what does good content mean? How much of it is about being very consistent with your brand? You know, we, we talked a lot throughout our conversation about essentially like cognitive shortcuts, right? Whether it's cognitive shortcuts that, that you know, you make when looking at audible like book covers or cognitive shortcuts that investors make when meeting me. The same thing is true for brands and, and, and the, the users that see their, their content. They're trying like, you know, if I say, doo, 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 we know that's McDonald's. If I show you the color, a certain shade of the color red without any branding, branding, you'll know it's Coca-Cola, right? And so this concept of, are we being consistent? And are we actually enforcing these distinctive brand assets becomes the second question that, we're try- that we try and answer. The third question, which is something I'm spending a lot of time focusing on now, is thinking about actual representation and content. So there's a lot of conversation about about diversity. And so what we're trying to do is think about how do we help the brands that we work with better understand the talent and casting decisions they're making in their advertising, but also beyond that, how they feature and represent different people. So, you know, Unilever, I believe, is the second largest um, advertiser in the world. People will see more Unilever ads that they probably, you know, watch like Netflix shows. I mean, I don't know that, that I've completely made up, but essentially it's a lot, right? We're exposed to a lot of ad messages. And there is research that shows that even the portrayals of people in advertising do help influence the way people see themselves. And so one of the things we're trying to use technology to better measure and to help brands answer is when you feature, let's say, women in advertising, how often are you portraying them as mothers and doing domestic duties? Versus how often are you portraying them as leaders or professionals, right? And all of this is really to try and and answer the question of, 
hey, you think you might be saying this, but what are you really saying when you analyze all of your content objectively and at scale? I'll give you an example here. We, we worked with a, a bank back in the day who prided itself on being a bank that was incredibly friendly to, to sort of diverse groups of people, right? They considered themselves sort of the approachable bank. We analyzed about 5,000 pieces of content that they ran over the course of a year. Not a single one of them. Can I just ask you how you analyze it? Is this manually, digitally? No. So so basically what we did is they had a bunch of questions they, they wanted to understand, right? So they wanted to understand how are we featuring different people? You know, what are the different elements that we represent in our content? So we pulled in about 5,000. I think it was mostly imagery at that time. This was a couple of years ago. And we built different elements that we would track in their ads. We looked for the presence of people. We we looked for the presence of you know men, women, uh, people of different skin colors. We looked the presence of certain objects. The goal was to really give them a more quantifiable view of here's how they were communicating. Uh, and so you think about- yeah, I, I'm sorry, just because, because I'm so interested in this. Like, do you have staff that are going through those one by one? Or do you have a program that can recognize those? What, what do you, okay, go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. So, so that's what, that's what we try to build, right? Is basically technology that can go in to an image or video and objectively understand everything that's contained therein. And the base layer of that is, is what we think of as object detection, right? So if someone took a picture of, of us talking and we ran that picture through creative X, you know, would sort of say, man, woman, glasses, computer, you know, maybe they could see the art on the wall or whatever the case may be. And sort of you train systems to be able to recognize that. But that data in and of itself probably isn't, it's, it's so much data that's probably not actionable for most people. So a lot of what we think about is how do we take this combination of data and structure into more thematic concepts that people can understand. So for example, maybe if you see a man and a woman and a child, you can say, well, that's a family, right? Or maybe when you see a man and a woman sitting on a conference table, you could say, that's a business meeting, that's a professional setting. And those types of insights or ways of looking at imagery, which again, are based on that underlying object detection, are probably much more insightful because ultimately if we're like, look, you know, having more art in the background is, is really powerful. What's that going to tell you? You're not going to put kind of an art in every a piece of art in every image. It's just not how creativity works. Right. And so what we thought was fascinating, and this again sort of comes back to, and by the way, as a slight detour, I studied psychology at university. So I've always been fascinated by this gap between what people say they'll do and what they actually do. And I think, that, again, kind of going back to this concept of the reality distortion field, yes, founders have it, but people have it too, to a huge extent. And in some ways that's necessary for survival, right? We need to tell myths even to ourselves to, to kind of get through life sometimes. But what we found fascinating is for this bank that prided itself on being a, a very kind of a very diverse, friendly and approachable bank, not a single image we analyzed out of about 5,000 featured a single person of color, right? And, and the reason why I called that out, and this is obviously an extreme example, is obviously that was not a conscious decision, right? No one sat there, and, especially given their overall positioning. <laughs> no one sat there and said, we're not going to cast people of color in our advertising. What probably happened is the standard big company problem, right? You have hundreds, if not thousands of marketers, you have dozens of agencies, all are marching to the beat of the same drum, and no one is able to take this mass amount of content and come up and say to you, hey, of your 5,000 ads, zero feature people of color. How does that go with your approachable diversity messaging? So, so 
you know, part of it again, and we talk about creative expression, enhancing creative expression through data, that doesn't necessarily always mean performance data. A lot of it can be, even these insights can be very powerful to brands because it helps people understand, are we actually saying and living the things we are trying to say and live? Yeah. Well, it's, it's so hard to manage something that we're not measuring, right? You know, and I think, like you said, probably nobody had done that analysis. Nobody knew, right? And so how much, how powerful is it to actually know? Okay, I know we're out of time. I have so many more questions. We really should have you just come back on the show. And I think we should do like a whole hour just on diving more into this stuff. Before I let you go though, well, for starters, besides creativex.com, where, where are good places for people to reach out? LinkedIn or other social media or where where, uh, where should people go? Yeah, LinkedIn is, I, I checked LinkedIn regularly. So that's, that's really the, the best and only place, yeah. Okay. Well, maybe for the final question here, what do you feel like is one of the best pieces of advice you ever received? The best advice? You know, I wouldn't say, I don't know if this qualifies as advice, but it was something someone told me that really changed the way I looked at myself, maybe. And I remember when, when I was thinking about first leaving Google, I was really toying around with the idea. I was unsure whether or not I wanted to take the plunge. I sat down with a friend of mine who I had actually met through working at Google. I was working on a deal for Google and he was the founder of a company on the other end. And, and we had become very good friends from that transaction. And I was saying, you know, I'm thinking of leaving, da, 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 da. And he said, you know, he looked at me and he said, Google is brilliant at hiring people like you. And I said, what are people like me? And he said, underconfident overachievers. And I remember that sort of hitting me like a brick in the face. And, you know, at first I was very defensive. I was like, what do you mean I'm underconfident? I'm very confident. And he was like, you are missing that last fundamental bit of confidence to sort of not care what anyone else says and go and do what you actually want to do. And it wasn't really advice as more of an observation that he had the courtesy to tell me directly and like it is, that really was a very big catalyst of getting me to change my relationship with and the, the attention I gave to how I was perceived by others to think about, I don't want to be this person. I don't want to be an underconfident overachiever. It's funny when we receive somewhat painful, exceedingly helpful feedback like that, isn't it? That's a great story. I appreciate you sharing that. Well, listen, thanks for coming on the show. This has been great. And congrats on all the success. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Like I said, I, I feel like I should be interviewing you. Maybe we'll get to do that one time. Okay, <laughs> bye everyone.